I'm going to welcome you to this Good Friday service, the seven last words of Jesus. Before we begin, we just want to remind you that on Sunday morning at 7 a.m., there will be a Resurrection Sunday. It might be wet or dry. We don't know. So it might be in the chapel if it's raining. If it's not, it'll be right outside. And tomorrow, Saturday at 2 p.m., we're going to have an Easter egg hunt or an Easter dive. We're not sure which one. It just depends on how much water we get. Uh, we're hoping that the water will stay clear until we get our Easter egg hunt done, but just plan to be with us. This is an especially somber service as we are in remembrance of the night in which Jesus gave his life for us. Tonight you will hear the seven last phrases uttered by Jesus from the cross. It'll be a chance for us to reflect on what he had to say, that last few phrases that he shared with us before he turned over his life. So as we go through this service, I just invite you to ponder and just think about what is being shared as this different people come up to share the seven last words of Jesus. Each 
Scripture reading from John chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already decided that Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, would betray Jesus. And during supper... Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from supper, took off his outer robe and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around them. Now we will hear the seven last words of Jesus. I'm a little bit uh, furrier than Tiffany. Uh, <laughs> so uh, leading up to this, um, Tiffany had been feeling like maybe she had taken this word from somebody else. And at the same time, kind of separately, I'd been feeling like I was being called to share about forgiveness. And we talked to each other about an hour before the service and decided that uh, she would, she would uh, hand it off to me. So. Uh, the first word is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgiveness is easy, is uh, what I thought for a long time. Um, 
and it was really because I hadn't really been in a situation uh, where someone had really wronged me enough for it to be hard. Um, uh, and it took, it took a lot of pain and consternation uh, and, and a lot of loving patience from uh, my grandma uh, to teach me a hard lesson about it, and that's what I'm going to share today with you all. Um, my grandma had two kids, my dad and, and my aunt, and my aunt had one kid, and that's my uh, cousin Ross. And she struggled her whole life with a lot of different things, my aunt. Um, and Ross's dad kind of was out of the picture very early in his life. And she raised him up uh, while she was struggling with a lot of things, a lot, a lot of addiction, a lot of depression, uh, suicidal thoughts and suicidal tendencies. Um, a revolving door of men in her life that severely mistreated my cousin. Um, and, it, and it got to a point where he had to be taken away from her and, and effectively raised by my grandma. Um, he was nine years younger than me and I was treated him in my heart like a brother. He was the best man at mine and Tiffany's wedding. Um, and, and he was always such a good, loving, sweet kid. Uh, despite everything that he'd gone through with my aunt. I know he had lived for probably the first six or seven years of his life through the worst, the worst possible stuff that a kid could go through, in, in my opinion, um, and, until he went with my grandma. And, and then probably starting from when he was around 13, he started uh, kind of acting out with my grandma and, and she was struggling with um, COPD, emphysema. Um, she'd had a large section of her lungs removed uh, for the last, I don't know, 15 years of her life. They kept telling her she had two years left to live. And, uh, and so when Tiffany and I graduated college and we got our house and we were making our, our big kid money, we we'd said that Ross should come live with us, uh, my cousin, um, instead of my grandma because she was struggling and there was a lot of discord there and there was a lot of things that he was getting into that weren't great and we thought we could be better and, and he came and lived with us. Um, and it was fine at first, uh, it was a new thing and he loved us and he looked up to me like a brother and, and it was all along but that, that old trauma and that old hurt was still there in him and eventually he fell in with the wrong sort of people even at the nice school we were at up in Alpharetta, um, the nice high school. And, and he started slipping back into self-destructive behavior, um, stealing, drugs, um, just not listening, being gone, not knowing where to find him. And that, that, really, that really hurt me, like to see, to see that firsthand with him. There was a lot of harsh things that were said um, by the time it was all said and done. He stayed with us for about a year and a half and by the end of that year and a half, um, I had done a lot of thought on, you know, what, what is it that you should tolerate from someone, um, continued abuse. And, and this is really where, it, where kind of this ties back to forgiveness because I'd always felt and thought that forgiveness doesn't mean letting someone walk all over you. Like you can forgive and you can stand up to yourself and not let yourself be taken advantage of. And, and so we've said, okay, this is, 
you can't stay with us anymore. He ended up going back with my grandma. Um, and I just had to keep watching as he would do the same stuff with us that he would do with us to my grandma as she was dwindling in health, um, stealing her medicine. Like all, every time I talked to her, it was a different horror story about the things that were going on. And I just had so much anger in my heart um, for what he was doing. And, uh, and every time, and I just, I couldn't figure out why she put up with it. Like, no matter what he did, it was, you know, it was always still, you know, love Ross. He's, he's here. He's staying with me. You're here. We're not, you know, and, and I realize now that that's exactly what he needed, um, to know that no matter what he did, like he was actively pushing people away because of the hurt he had inside of him. And he needed someone who would, who would say, no matter what you do, I'm not going to abandon you. Um, you can, you can, you can heap, heap, my grandma was basically saying, you can heap all of this abuse on me and I still love you no matter what. It was a very Christ-like love. Um, after she died, uh, he, I, I'm guessing it was a, it was a, it was a, it had a galvanizing effect on him. He ended up finding Christ. He ended up marrying a, a very Christ-filled young woman, and they have two beautiful kids, and he and I have reconciled, and we've forgiven each other for the things that were done and said when he lived with us. Um, but I don't think that would have happened if my grandma hadn't have been that steadfast influence on him, if she hadn't kept forgiving him and allowing herself to be hurt over and over again. Um, and that's, that's what Christ did on, on, you know, the day, the day he died and he went through the passion and at every moment he could have stopped what was going on. He could have said what I said and said, you know, I forgive you, but I'm not going to allow myself to be hurt anymore. But he didn't. He said, I forgive you and keep doing what you're doing. And, and, and the lesson that I learned from my grandma about forgiveness is that when you forgive someone, you've got to look at them like they've never hurt you before. And that, and that, that's true, that's true Christ deep forgiveness. And not, not being afraid of being hurt and not, not protecting yourself, but that selfless, enduring, love-filled forgiveness that I think changed his life. And I see it and, and, and I'm thankful for it. The second word is from Luke 23:43. Jesus said, "Today thou shalt be with me in paradise." Now, we we all remember there were um, well there was Jesus hanging on a cross and there were other people up there hanging on crosses next to him on either side. So he wasn't up there by himself and the thieves were saying different things to him. Um, one was hurling insults, kind of, and the other one was the one that he said this to. Today you will be with me in paradise. Just, so just as a reminder, um, so the one criminal who hung there hurled insults at him, aren't you the Christ? 
save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what we deserve, what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So he was aware that he was guilty and he deserved punishment and judgment. And he was aware Jesus was innocent. And he also acknowledged that there was life after death because he was saying, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. It was a Hail Mary. It, it was a Hail Mary to me. I, I mean, I think that's a football term, and I don't really know anything about football, but I think that's what that kind of was. And um, it wasn't like he wasn't, he didn't have the luxury of being up there like the, the good, the, the, the wise young ruler who approached Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? No, he was hanging on a cross and suffering right there next to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, today you will be with me. Surely, I truly, I say unto you, you will be with me today in paradise. You, you will be with me in paradise. Now, he could have said today, you will be with me in hell. Would that be okay? Well, I would say it's best to be with Jesus wherever you are. You can be in hell and you're, and you're with Jesus. You can be in the depths. You can be in the heights, ups or downs. The Psalms talk about whether I'm, you know, wherever I go, I go down into the depths and there he is with me. Being with Jesus is where you want to be. But what Jesus was saying was, we're going on a trip. How does paradise sound? Um, and I noticed, I've noticed in the past how in the days before, just in the days before the crucifixion, Jesus started foretelling the future. Um, he didn't usually do that, but he was saying, like, he would say, um, go into the, tell some couple of disciples, go into the town, you'll find a colt. It's never been ridden. Um, just take it. And uh, if somebody asks you, hey, what are you doing? Just tell them that the Lord needs it, and they'll let you go. And it happened, just as he said. He said to some other disciples, go into the, uh, this somebody's house and just this place, go into the town and then tell them you need the, you need the upper room for, um, for, uh, for the Lord. And, and they'll let you go and you'll find everything ready. And it happened just like that. He also told Peter, you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows. Um, and we know in the scripture that all those things happened. We don't see in the scripture what happened after those words to the thief you'll be with me in paradise, because that happened behind all this temporal. That happened in the invisible realm. But on Jesus' record, you can trust that it was true. And the thief did see him in paradise. God is trustworthy. He is faithful. He is good. He is merciful. He didn't say, well, you know what? We'll have a talk about that later. Um, he... he he was merciful to the thief, the thief who just recognized his sinfulness, 
recognized his need for judgment, recognized Jesus' innocence, recognized that he had a kingdom he was going into, and he was sort of at that moment seeking first the kingdom of God, seeking his righteousness, Jesus, and, and Jesus answered him, um, an answer we'd all like to be told. Wherever we are, we want to be with Jesus.
The third word comes from the book of John, chapter 19, verses 26 through 27. When Jesus saw his mother there, the disciple whom he loved standing by, standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. I want to share a little story. And from that background, when I was reading this word, of course, I kind of try to stretch it to see if somebody else would take it. But I guess God wanted me to share it. And it took me back to my own mother. Uh, just for content, my mother married my father at the age of 15. She was, she was almost 17 when I was born. Um, she was very young, lived in a very strict home, and I'm pretty sure she married my dad for the wrong reasons. My dad was no bargain. Um, and uh, of course, I won't bore you with the details. But 11 years after the marriage, that's when my mother decided to call it quits with my dad. Years went by, and my mother started living the, making wrong choices, like I guess it was a thing in my house. And, and then she met this guy who I knew. And this, and, and this fellow was bad news. And I knew that he was a respectful guy, but he was so deep into the streets that I said, if this, if this, if this goes any closer, this guy is gonna, we're, we're not, my mother's not gonna be safe. So they got married and the nightmare began. Uh, during her marriage, you know, I saw the, I saw all the struggles. She tried to, to keep that tight ship. She tried to, you know, make things work. She tried all the things that she knew to do. During the process of that marriage, then I get saved. 29 years today ago. Happy birthday to me. Yeah. So... Then, I get married, Vaughn was born, life was great. During that time, I was still praying for my mother's safety because I knew that she wasn't safe. I was praying for that marriage. I was praying that I was asking God, God, either you change this man's heart or I don't know what's going to happen, but my mother needs to be safe and needs to be saved because it was getting to the point that it was just getting too deep and, and I was very concerned. But one day, one day I was in, we were home, we were having dinner and I hear these tires just, just screeching in the street from where I live. And that, and that car just drove through the drive-through and we're like, what in the world's going on? I hear this uncontrollable cry and it was my mother. I get scared. I got scared because I, I had to make a choice in a split second and, how, and, and not knowing what happened and how I was going to go about it. 
So when I got there, and I said, I went to my mother, and I said, what in the world is going on? So what had happened was that her husband grabbed all his belongings while my mother was at work. He grabbed all his belongings, and he left with another woman. And my mother gets home to an empty house, and she was heartbroken. Now, part of me was thankful to the Lord, but I didn't want to see my mother going through a heartbreak because I was getting broken. So, just like that, I mean, it was great news for me, but all I heard my mother say was, I failed again. I failed another marriage. And as she was in my living room and we were talking, Angie and I decided we need to break the contract of this house. We need to move with mom until I know that she's doing well. We, we left everything. We went home uh, with my mother until she got better. Fast forward, my mother is happily married to a strong Christian man. She serves the Lord passionately. She, she is a bold woman, and she will preach Jesus wherever she goes. And that's the victory of the story. But one of the, I, I say all this to say, when we had to make the decision, Christ spoke those words in Scripture, giving me the instructions to say, there is your mother. There is your mother. The instructions of Jesus in the cross, I took it personally for me. And if she would ever be in another bind, I would be there for her. Because I was instructed to honor my mother. Sorry, Angie. And I say all this just to say that, and this was a story that God reminded me of when I was reading this verse. If your mother is still with us, make sure you remind her how important and valuable she is to you. Because if you don't, while she's alive, she will not hear it after she transitions to return her home. So I thank God for this word. I thank the Lord that gives, he, he gave me and he gives me the opportunity to become a better son to the only parent I have left. Well, the first thing that I want to say is don't ever miss this service. My goodness, I'm just struck. Um, speaking behind three people who, I mean, Matt coming in the last moment, completely sharing everything. I was looking up going, that's not Tiffany. Um, but being so sensitive to the Lord in the last hour and having the guts to share what he did and to speak on something very difficult and at the end to speak of the faithfulness of the Lord in a difficult time. And then hope stands up 
grieving her husband and comes to speak in front of the whole group and talk about being with the Lord in paradise when she's going through a very, very tough time. And then Jose shares the same thing. In the midst of it, it looked like God was nowhere, but God came out on the other side and he brought victory out of what looked like sure defeat. And that's God's pattern. If there's one thing we learn in the Bible, it's those people who follow after God are always glad they did. And those people who don't follow after God always wish they had. And Romans 15, 4 says, all those stories in the Old Testament are for us so that we can see God is faithful and we can cherish hope. That was my preface to the fourth word. Are you ready? The fourth word is Matthew 27, 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus had been one with the Father since forever. Before time, Jesus was one with the Father. In Revelation 13, 8, it says of Jesus that he was the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. When God created man and woman, he knew what he was doing. But more than that, he knew what was coming. He knew that we would not be faithful. He knew that when tempted to promote ourselves or to love him, we would choose to promote ourselves. He knew that was going to happen. He knew there would be a fall and a separation and a breaking between God the Father and us that had to be mended. For the scripture says we were meant to be one with him and we will never be happy until we are. That's what we were made for, to be one with God. And Jesus knew before he created man, he was going to have to give up his life and take on his body sin. And the verse I want to make sure I translate out and you walk away with is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. And that was our sin. That was my sin. That was Bobby's sin. That was Will's sin. That was Margie's sin. He became that sin. When he became that sin, for the first time in his existence, not just the first time in 33 years, but the first time in all eternity, he was separated from the Father. And you remember how Jesus would talk about that? He would say, when you see me, you see the Father, for I and the Father are one. When he went up on that cross, he was separated from the Father. He had never experienced it.
It is beyond pure horror. Beyond pure horror. It is beyond ultimate pain. It is everything that is death, destruction, and hurting. And he voluntarily took it on him so that we would not have to go through that. So when he came to that place, he knew he was going to be separated from the Father, but he was separated from the Father. And he experienced the worst that could ever be experienced. And he did it for our sake. And yet, knowing it was going to happen, he cried out and said, Father, Father, why have you done this? Knowing it was going to happen, and it was needful for him to be separated. But that sense of separation was so driving, hurt so bad, he had to cry out to the Father and say, Why? Where are you? You can't leave me, and you have left me. When I think on the cross, I know that Jesus suffered terribly in the physical. I know he suffered with many lashes. I know it was extraordinarily painful. But I consider this to be the most painful thing he went through, for he was separated from the Father, and he did it voluntarily for our sake. It helps me put things in perspective. I have no problem that touches being separate from the Father, for the Father now has all of us gathered in as his family because of what Jesus did, taking our punishment, taking the fullness of the punishment for our sake so that we would not have to take it. I have the uh, fifth word from the cross comes from John chapter 19, verse 28, and I'll read 29 together with it. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. I'm thirsty. It seems like such a simple statement, yet it conveyed something very real for Jesus. Sometimes we forget that he had been on the cross for over three hours at this point, three hours bleeding, three hours experiencing the crown of thorns on his head, three hours feeling the nails through his wrists and through his feet. Three hours of people hurling insults. Three hours of just giving himself slowly and painfully for us. Jesus' words, I am thirsty, were more than just about his thirst for water. Part of me thinks that at that moment he was thirsting for the pain to end. He was thirsting for the sacrifice to be completed. He was thirsting for God to finish what he had started. There's no doubt that this was the absolute worst physical pain imaginable 
we, we can't even understand. We don't have an understanding for just the agony. 39 lashes, thorns in your brow, spikes in your hands and feet. It was torture of the worst kind. Some commentators have speculated that Jesus was quoting Psalm 69. Save me, O God. I am weary of my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to me. Redeem me. Set me free because of my enemies. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. And that vinegar touched Jesus' lips. I doubt it really quenched his thirst. Maybe it provided a small moment of relief. But if you know anything about vinegar and sour wine, it would have hurt on every single cut and every single place that was bleeding. It would have given a very slight momentary relief and then immediately produced incredible pain. And yet Jesus asked in a way for drink by saying, I am thirsty, to fulfill the scriptures, to fulfill what had been foretold that he would do when he was on the cross. Jesus was demonstrating his full humanity, but he was also showing us that he understands our griefs and our sorrows. He understands what it means to feel pain, real pain. And he knows what it means to be obedient through the pain. How many of us would have been able to stay obedient through the pain? How many of us would have continued to endure until it was truly done and finished? When Jesus was there on the cross, experiencing our griefs and our sorrows, carrying our sins, as Jim mentioned, experiencing the death that was rightly ours, he thirsted. The one who was the living water, the one who had told the woman on the well that he had fountains of living water that would spring up for eternal life, experienced thirst. He thirsted for his task to be complete. But one thing that brings me hope and encouragement in this is that we know that even though Jesus thirsted at that moment, God did spring forth life from his death. God did fulfill that which was promised in Scripture, that through the sacrifice of the Lamb, the sins of the world would be wiped away. Jesus thirsted for you, he thirsted for me. And whenever I thirst for something, whether it be righteousness or healing, provision or help, I know that God 
will answer my thirst with his living water.
nothing. God, I came here with nothing, but all you have given me. Jesus, bring new wine out of me. Jesus, bring new wine out of me. Jesus, bring new wine. It is finished, John 19.30. When I was a little girl listening to these words of Jesus on the cross, I was of the mindset that he should call for legions of angels, blast these people, annihilate them with the smite button E, put them in their place. And then he said, it's finished. And I thought with my peanut-sized brain, your life is finished. Of course you're saying it's finished, duh. But with my physical little eyes, I couldn't have the spiritual eyes to see what was really going on. Now our lives are full of finishing projects and jobs. Have you finished your homework? Have you finished your project for school, project for work? Have you finished reading that book? Have you finished cleaning your room? I'm coming in there to check. Or from a relative trying to figure out how old you are, have you finished the second grade? Well, you don't look like you've been to college, you know. Or eating. Have you finished eating? Put your plate in the sink. Well, your mother wants the table clean, but your siblings are looking to see if there's anything on the plate that they might want to eat that you've left, especially of a lot of siblings. I was watching Bluey the other day with grandchildren, and, and uh, Bandit looks over at Bingo's plate, the four-year-old, and says to his wife, has Bingo finished eating all of these fish and chips? She goes, I think so. Of course, she hadn't, and he ate them up, and she was um, mad. I haven't finished yet. It's funny when you've got this, you hear a lot of finishing terminology working up into I have finished. So I'll let you watch that episode of Bluey and see how that turned out for him. Um, when we talk about finish, there's always a start. You start a project, then have you finished it? You start painting your house, have you finished it? You start your chores, have you finished them? Then in athletic contests, there's the question, where did you finish when you finished? Were you first, second, or third? Were you 58th? Were you the last person in your age group to cross the line? Last year, I walked the Peachtree Road Race, and when I'm wearing that T-shirt, people say, did you finish? Yeah, wearing the shirt, went across the line, got my picture made, got the shirt, yes. People want to know if you finished college. Did you finish Scout, Sam, all the way to Eagle? My brother recently told me the legal work associated with mother dying and selling her house was finished, and that was a very great load off of us. Well, back in Jesus' day, which is what we're talking about, there was a Greek word that the merchants used when you finished paying for something that you bought. And it could be used for one payment or finishing your payment plan. It had the additional meaning of the object being redeemed. And it was like paying off your house or your car and you get a paid in full statement and then you get the title later on. In Jesus' time, Yvonne's going to show you the word. The Greek word was tetelestai. I listened and listened to the Google pronunciation thing, tetelestai. Officially, it reads, this has been paid in full. And it, Greeks have a tense we don't have. And so it means past, present, and future. 
interesting. So the debt can't be reopened. They can't say, in the past, you didn't pay it. Oh, wait, you didn't pay it today. Or, like the mafia, in the future, you're going to have to pay some more. There's no leverage there. It was done, paid for, in the past, the present, and the future. This is important. The debt cannot be reopened. Now, remember, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. So when John is writing his um, gospel, he selects this word, to telestai, for it is finished. So what did Jesus finish? He finished a lot of things. He came to do a lot of things. He came to teach us a lot of things. But I'm going to focus on, as Jim was saying, that Jesus came, started, and finished as the Lamb of God. Now, under the Old Covenant, you ha in order for you to have your sins covered up, not forgiven, not removed, covered, you had to have a blood sacrifice. This was usually a lamb or a goat, but for Passover, it's a lamb because you remember when Moses was freeing everybody from Egypt, the blood of a lamb was put on the doorpost and then the death passed over, ha-ha, Passover, those houses that the firstborn sons were being um, killed in. So here at Passover, the shepherds were extremely busy because all the families coming into the city for their required visit to the temple had to have a lamb that was one year old, perfect, and with no broken bones. There was a market, supply and demand. So the hills were full of these sheep, and they were being tended by shepherds to fulfill the supply that needed to be met for the Passover ceremony. Okay, it's like Christmas. Right now, we don't have Christmas trees out, but at Christmas in December, there's a whole lot of Christmas trees everywhere. So, right before Passover, the hills are full of lambs that are being raised to be sacrificed. Got it? Lots of demand for a lamb at, for sacrifice at Passover. Now, so how did Jesus start his journey as the Lamb of God? Well, when he was born. When the Gospel of Luke is written, it says, The night Jesus was born, the angels appeared first to the shepherds abiding in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And you know the verses. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said to them, Fear not, but behold, I begin bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to you and all people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in the manger. And then the angel multitude says, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace and goodwill toward man. These men, these shepherds, received the first announcement of Jesus' birth. The shepherds that would supply the Passover lambs to the families coming in in Jerusalem. The Lamb of God had been born. The angels brought this news to the shepherds that were supplying the lambs for the sacrifice at Passover. And if that doesn't give you chill bumps, you're dead. That is awesome to me. Makes me cry. Makes me cry. Now, when Jesus was 30, he began his ministry. And John the Baptist saw him, and he told those men, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. And then the day afterwards, he pointed to Jesus and said, Look, the Lamb of God. These men thought he was nuts, but he was seeing Jesus with spiritual eyes, and he knew Jesus was our Savior. Now, God pays great attention to details, and there's another detail about lambs selected for the Passover sacrifice. The lamb had to be selected four days before it was taken in for sacrifice, and it had to live with the family. Now, what did this accomplish? 
the children would have a pet, probably give it a name like Lammy or Fluffy. This way the family would be attached to the pet and the sacrifice would have meaning. Wouldn't have meaning if it didn't cost anything. What if dad said, hey, let's sacrifice this old disease sheep. It's going to die anyway. We'll just go do that one instead of this perfect one that could give us a good dollar. No one would feel the emotional toll of killing the old diseased one, not the innocent pet lamb that they'd been living with for four days that was going to have to take their sins on and lose its own life. Now here's the detail. The day of lamb selection was the day Jesus entered in the city on a donkey to the shouts of Hosanna. It was Palm Sunday. I think that's cool. I don't care what you think, that is cool. On Good Friday, the day Jesus was sacrificed, he was put on the cross at nine in the morning and he hung there six hours, finally gave up his spirit at three in the afternoon. Well, this time of three o'clock in the afternoon is another important detail. The Bible says it's the ninth hour, but they start counting at sunrise at six. So at the ninth hour is our three o'clock p.m. This time of three o'clock p.m. is the time of the ceremonial Passover lamb being sacrificed at the temple across town in Jerusalem. Historians say that the priest would announce to the masses outside that the sacrifice had been made by coming out and saying, it is finished. Okay, so while the, the priest over here is saying the sacrificial lamb has been sacrificed, Jesus is saying at the same time, it is finished there. He is our king, our priest, and our savior. The same words on the cross. Now everyone would know the significance of those words because they'd heard it every time the priest had ever come out and said that the sacrifice had been made. So they know when they brought their lambs what this meant, that the sacrifice was finished. Now John records it in Greek with that word to telestai to show the sin debt was paid in full and mankind was redeemed. No more lambs sacrificed. We've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of God. It doesn't get any better than this. So when the soldiers came around to break the leg bones of the men who were crucified to make sure they were dead, they saw Jesus was already dead and they did not break his bones, which fulfills the prophecy again that he was the Lamb of God and no bones were broken. God is very attentive to details, and I think that's fascinating. Now, what if Jesus had not finished what he came to do? What if he did what I wanted? Jump off the cross, blast everyone with a ray gun, leave the earth smoldering, turn his back on us, and go back up to heaven. Say, screw you, I'm done with y'all. Instead of sacrificing himself for the sins of the world, past, present, and future, I tell you what we'd be doing, we'd be coming to church this week, burdened and bound by Satan. We'd be dragging a lamb by a leash, bleating and bawling. Children would be crying and clinging on Lammy. Don't kill him, Daddy, don't kill him. Church would smell like burning meat. Blood would be everywhere flowing, pooled, spattered back in the day at the temple. The smell would be awful. We would leave the church with the children wailing for Lammy Fluffy, their dead pet, 
We would be covered in all sorts of stuff, animal stuff, a lot of blood, and our sins would only be covered. They would not be forgiven, and they would be there until we came back the next year to get them covered again. Through the blood sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God, our sins are forgiven and removed as far as the east is from the west, and we are seen in his righteousness as white as snow. The sacrifice of the Lamb of God was finished, is finished, and will always be finished. This debt cannot be reopened to tailless die, to tailless die, to tailless die. It is finished. Okay, the seventh word is found in Luke 23, verse 46. The Amplified Classic Version reads, And Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hand I commend my spirit. And with this word, he expired. The Passion Translation Version reads, then Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, I surrender my spirit into your hands, and took his last breath and died. Jesus, as we have been talking tonight, died after long suffering and torturing that he endured from the Roman soldiers and in the house of the high priest when they uh, took the hairs out of his beard. All this was done under the authority of Pontius, Pontius Pilate and the high priest. What called my attention when I read this verse is that he cried with a loud voice. I imagine when somebody dying, especially under those conditions, that he would be very silently talking or praying to God, but not Jesus. But with a loud voice, he prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I believe that maybe his intentions were for everybody to hear what he was saying. Everybody that was present to witness this spectacle, because he was a spectacle, at least those with close proximity heard those words, his final words. And those words, as I mentioned, were heard by the crowd. I read a commentary this, this afternoon, and what I found is that the same words are found in Psalm 31, verse 5, which reads, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Rescue me, Lord, for you are a faithful God. So what I understand from this, his last words, is that he was reciting something that probably many of the people that were there, especially those uh, uh, Jewish, heard those words before. 
So Jesus is quoting at his death, Psalm 31. But see, he was not able to finish because he died. He knew that God was his redeemer and a faithful God. He gives up his human life to God and embraces and entrusts his eternal destiny to God who is faithful and is his redeemer. The next verse, in verse 47, it says, in the Passion Translation we read, when a Roman captain overseeing the crucifixion, crucifixion witnessed all that took place, he was awestruck and glorified God, acknowledging what they have done. He said, I have no doubt we just kill the righteous one. Even at the end of his life, at his last words, someone was touched. Glorify God and understood that they just killed the precious Messiah. I'm going to go a little bit out. Um, when I got here in the, in the service, I read something that was in the, uh, in the PowerPoint that it says it's a day to repent. And this is what we're doing here on Friday. We are remembering the crucifixion of Jesus. But see, on that day, what happened is that forever and all eternity, Jesus is going to see that crucifixion place. And through that lens and through that crucifixion side, he's going to continue to look at the world. So, in God's mind, every time he looked at the, word, the world, his creation, what he's going to see is through the lens of Jesus, the crucified Jesus, this is what he's going to look at the world from that day until the rest of eternity. God bless you. Bound and 
drenched in tears. They laid him down in Joseph's tomb. The entrance Revelations, we are told that the Lamb of God that was slain is in the throne room of God and it still bears the marks of its crucifixion. As we leave today, we will do so in silence and reverence, in remembrance of what Jesus did for each and every one of us on the cross. After a few moments, the lights will be lifted so you can see a little bit better but please go out in silence.